trying to get back to the basics of great products. Power comes from sharing information. I try to convince people to slow down. Free. Yeah. Open. This is the Soak Dice Podcast. Hey, we just had a great conversation with Rahul Vohra from Superhuman. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. At the end of the episode, uh, Rahul kind of offered anyone listening to this episode or part of the Slush community to be bumped to the front of the superhuman waitlist, which currently sits at 365,000 people. So if you're eager to try the product out, haven't been able to bypass the waitlist so far, just enter the code SLUSH when signing up, and you enter the code in the box that asks, where did you hear about us, as in superhuman. But now let's go to the episode. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Soaked by Slush podcast. My name is William von der Palen, and in Copenhagen with a very sleek home studio setup is Isak Rautio. Hi, Isak. Hi, William. Yeah, Copenhagen is back to lockdown again, so this is my homely lockdown cave that I've set up as a studio today. It's nice. It feels feels like home, because I guess because it is home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that might be the reason. And uh Yeah, on on the other end of the world and in a very uh, crisp and uh, well, uh, you know, lit setup, we have a yet another super interesting guest. So welcome uh, to the show, Rahul Vohra. Hello and thank you for having me. We thought we could uh, start off, uh, even though we have pretty well-known names on this show, it's always interesting to hear in in the in, in your own words um, who you see yourself as and, and what you've done so far. So maybe you can, could start off with your background and, and who you are. Sure. Well, back in the day, I founded Reportive, which was the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. We sold that to LinkedIn in 2012, where it grew into LinkedIn Sales Navigator. And now I'm best known as the founder and CEO of Superhuman, where we make the fastest email experience in the world. Most of our users end up getting to their inbox twice as fast as before, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years. Yeah, that's that's probably a new feeling for for most people. Uh, yeah, those are both obviously quite well known well known products. I just used LinkedIn Sales Navigator today, and and uh, also heard a lot about Superhuman and read all, a lot about it, and and heard you know uh, overwhelmingly positive things about that. But uh, maybe we could uh, dive into that a little bit uh, bit more. Um, Because, you know, okay, everyone's been complaining about email is broken, it takes too much time, but very little innovation has happened uh, to email in the last, well, <laughs> forever. So how did you get that idea and, and what made you uh, actually then decide to take the step and, and go into that space? Well, at Reportive, we had kickstarted the whole ecosystem of Gmail plugins. When the When we first built it, no one was building plugins inside of Gmail that was considered a crazy thing to do. And at LinkedIn, we ran all of our email integrations. During those four years, I developed a very intimate view of email. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, still not working properly offline. And on top of this, people were installing plugins like ours, reported, but also Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each plugin took those problems of clutter, memory, CPU performance offline and made all of them dramatically worse. So we decided 
it was time for change. We imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction takes place in 100 milliseconds or less. An experience, of course, where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from your keyboard and fly through your inbox, and an experience that just worked offline, so you could be productive from anywhere, not to mention an experience that had all of the best Gmail plugins built in natively, and yet somehow was subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And so with that, we built Superhuman. And I'm excited to share that today, Superhuman is by now a long way the fastest email experience in the world. Our customers are saving many hours a week, and many of them actually see Inbox Zero for the first time ever. In fact, we just wrapped up this analysis. More than half of all of our customers now hit Inbox Zero within the first four hours of using the product. That's interesting. You refer to the email experience as such. When I think about email, I just think I, I just use email. I use my Gmail, and obviously there might be some sort of experience in there, but it's not sort of. It doesn't feel like it's built into the the product as such. Uh, but it seems as if this is a big part of the philosophy behind Superhuman. Can you elaborate on that and why it has achieved all these things? Uh, sure, we didn't want to build just an email client. We wanted to engineer and design the entire experience from the moment you first hear about Superhuman to that triumphant moment when you actually hit inbox zero. This is similar, if you will, to how Apple, I think, approaches building a laptop, especially more recently with the M1, or how I might imagine Tesla approaches building a car. They're not just building a device or a vehicle, they are engineering or designing an entire experience. So that's everything from how you feel when you first hear about Superhuman to our personalized one-to-one -one concierge onboarding through, of course, the actual product experience itself, which is critical to helping you get through your inbox twice as fast. That onboarding thing was interesting. I was listening to uh, one of your, um, I think it was a keynote where you talked about your, I wouldn't say disdain, but your sort of, you, you, you try to stay away from traditional launches and, and do onboarding in a more sort of uh, meticulous, I guess, paced way. Uh, uh, can you speak a bit more on this? What is your approach to onboarding? Yeah, totally. Well, I would say that it came out of an insistence that we delight our users one by one. For those that don't know, for every single new user, we do a personalized one-to-one -one concierge onboarding. And these are 30-minute one-to-one video calls with one of our wonderful onboarding specialists. Now, I've seen a lot of companies, especially in our space, which I would broadly define as productivity, get this completely wrong. In fact, I no longer believe in the traditional launch. Let's say you built a new email client or a new task manager or a new calendar app. The surface area for these products is absolutely massive, bigger than almost any domain you could think of. And what that means is that you also get a massive surface area for bugs, as well as massive variability in how users want to use your product. Now, most companies would launch their app and because the demand for these products is so high, they would quickly get tens of thousands of users. But guess what? these users will quickly find thousands of bugs and the company would quickly get overwhelmed. They would not be able to fix the issues fast enough. And so these users become disappointed, they churn out of the product, and then they tell everybody about their experience. This is the very definition of a net detractor. 
in my experience, it is significantly better to do what we do, which is to onboard customers at a measured pace every single week. That way you have the bandwidth to find and fix any issues they report, and you can focus on making them exceptionally happy. Yeah, that's a, in many ways, when you describe it like that, it's, it's, it's very counterintuitive, as you said, uh, uh, to, to what most um, companies are doing. It's, you know, it's always, you know, fail fast, build a minimum viable product, get it out, get it out, get funding, start marketing and fix it as you go and, and break things and, and all that. And this is, uh, I think this is a very interesting approach. And, and you had this whole uh, waitlist system with, at some point, at least I read that you had 150,000 people <laughs> on your waitlist for the app and you still resisted the urge to just take them all in and then start billing them. Uh, but could you speak a bit uh, more on also, is that, that's obviously part of the, the philosophy to, to build a wait list and, and keep people waiting. And uh, But is there something more to that? Is it also like a marketing uh, strategy to create basically, you know, um, an app that's not available right away for everyone and it becomes this club in a way and then you get in at, at some point or, or what's the philosophy behind that? Not really. And I think the waitlist is widely misunderstood. Many people assume we're doing it in order to create a club or to create the fear of missing out to drive scarcity. Nothing could be further from the truth. The idea really is we only onboard people onto the product if we believe we can delight you. If there's a reason why we think we can't, let's say, for example, you need an Android app today, we don't support Android, or you need an Office 365 integration today with Gmail and G Suite only, then we'll say very genuinely, hey, sorry, we don't have those things. We're building those things. We'll let you know when we're done building them. And that's really the point of the waitlist. Then, of course, we do those one-to-one personalized VIP experiences that really get into the details of email with you in those onboardings, the onboarding specialists look at how you're doing your email today. Then they show you how to use superhuman. And in particular, they understand how your day works and they can show you how to do your email twice as fast inside of superhuman. Is it hard to resist the urge? Uh, you know, you see the, the long wait list of, of potential customers and obviously also potential revenue and, and uh, that all that also entails, you know, possibilities to, to scale or, or is it so grown into your strategy and in your philosophy that it's it's almost easier to to actually slow down and, and not let everyone in it's actually not that hard to resist the urge in fact i don't even feel it so i'm trying to imagine what it might feel like <laughs> for me the urge is to build and uh, create rather the best possible product which we do but then to get it out and make sure it's actually living up to expectation no amount of rushing or haste ever builds a great product. Do you see there's some uh, misunderstandings in this sort of wide concept of fail fast and just stand up and 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 do you see anything? Is this is this a mantra that has been repeated too much and has sort of lost a lot of practical value? I think so. Instead of failing fast, I would rather succeed inevitably. Hmm, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. It's a good T-shirt, at least. <laughs> you, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now you you um, and I haven't. I have to confess right away that I haven't read too much about this, and and with reason because I wanted you to explain it so I don't get it wrong. But um, you had this very famous um, article and and thoughts around the product market fit engine and this whole philosophy about you know building great products, which which uh, at least initially was a was an interesting thing for you and, and something that became quite widespread. So. 
would you want to explain to our listeners what this engine was and, and how you used that? Absolutely. And it's something that we still use to this day. In the summer of 2015, we started, much like any other software company, by writing code. In the summer of 2016, we were still coding. And in the summer of 2017, we were still coding. And I did, at that point, feel this incredible, intense pressure to launch, both from the team, but more importantly, from within myself. After all, my last company, Reportive, had launched, scaled, and been acquired in less time. And yet here we were two years in, and we still had not launched. Now, deep down inside, I knew no matter how intensely I felt pressure, a launch would go very badly. I did not believe we had product market fit. And although I knew it, I couldn't just say that to the team. You see, these are super ambitious, hyper-intelligent engineers. They poured their hearts and souls into the product. I decided I needed a plan. And so in the April of 2017, I started my search for the holy grail for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. I searched high and low, I read everything I could find, I spoke with all the experts, and then I came across Sean Ellis. Now, Sean had run growth in the early days of Dropbox, LogMeIn, Eventbrite. He'd coined the term growth hacker. Sean found a leading indicator of product market fit, one that is benchmarked and predictive. Just ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product and measure the percent who answer very disappointed? After benchmarking thousands of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow almost always get less than 40% very disappointed, whereas the companies that grow easily almost always get more than 40%. In other words, if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, then you have initial product market fit. Now, I found that this metric is more objective than a feeling, that it predicts success better than the net promoter score, and that it is not only the best way to measure product market fit, we've been able to use it to develop our very own product market fit engine. And this engine is the methodology that we use to systematically increase product market fit. One of the exciting things about it is that it even automatically generates our roadmap for us. And that is a roadmap that is guaranteed to increase that product market fit score. Now, there's a tremendous amount of detail behind all of that. There's a whole algorithm, essentially, that you run, a set of questions that you ask, and a way of segmenting the data in order to run the engine. So for folks listening or watching who would like to learn more, I've actually written this up in great detail. I'd highly recommend searching for superhuman product market fit and working through the article there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll definitely link that in the description. Did you use uh, the, do you use the same philosophy? Uh, you know, do you use it only for the product roadmap uh, and product market fit, or is it something that also helps you develop communications and marketing and other aspects of the business as well, or is it solely designed to to increase product market fit? Great question. And we absolutely use the product market fit engine to improve marketing's and communications too. The first step to that is to understand who are the people who really love our product. 
And I personally like to use the concept of the high expectation customer. Now, this is a concept that I found from Julie Supan. Julie led early marketing at Dropbox, Airbnb, and many other great companies. The HXC is the most discerning person in your demographic. They will enjoy your products for its greatest benefits. They'll help spread the word. And most importantly, others want to be like them because they see them as clever, judicious, and insightful. Now, I know it's a little abstract, so we can consider two examples. The Dropbox HXC wants to simplify their life. They're very trusting, they're technically savvy, and they're looking to save time. At the end of the day, they simply want to know that somebody has their back when it comes to saving their life's work. I'm an example of the Dropbox HSC, and I'm sure many of our audience are also. Now, the Airbnb HXC does not simply want to visit new places. They want to belong. They want to experience Paris as if they really live there. And Airbnb's early success came from focusing on these influencers and these tastemakers. So the question then becomes, how do you create your own HXC? Easy. Take the users who would be very disappointed without your product. Remember, these are the folks that love your product and analyze their answers to the following question. Who do you think this product is best for? That's a question in the product market fit engine. And it is a very powerful question as happy users will almost always describe themselves, but using the words that matter most to them. Then you can not only turn these words into a detailed definition of your highest expectation customer, you can literally use them in your marketing copy, which is something that we do. It's super interesting. It, it, yeah. Somehow you make it sound very easy. <laughs> uh, I mean, like it's it's, it's like, a process. Yeah, it's a process. I understand that, but it's uh, it's rare to to hear that. You know, and and I'm sure in the engine room of many companies this is what happens. But when it's very well formulated and and built into a process, it it kind of begs the question that okay, um, anyone should be able to follow these steps, and and uh, once finding something, then should be able to to make that great. So it's 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 uh, it's superb and very interesting to hear also, and and it's uh, great that you can also share what you're doing so openly. Uh, I have to ask. Um, What's your very disappointed score today? It varies anywhere between about 50% and 60%. It, of course, does go up and down over time. That's something that's inevitable. Yeah, yeah exactly. Are there still some uh, uh, aspects of the process that you have to be careful with? Uh, or do you have to go too much into specifics to answer that question? Are there still some like pitfalls you have to be aware of while going uh, using the engine? Sure, there are multiple pitfalls, uh, many kinds. One that frequently comes up is people will survey the same user multiple times. It's really important to note that the survey was designed and the whole engine was designed in order to survey users once. If you survey them multiple times, you're going to introduce all kinds of different bias. Another pitfall is only doubling down on what users love, as vision-driven founders and teams tend to do. The problem with that is if you only double down on what users love, you won't actually increase the set of people who, for whom your product they would be very disappointed without. 
because those objections on the other side are still holding them back. There's the counterpoint to that problem, which is founders and teams that only systematically address objections. The problem with that is that the competitor will eventually overtake you by doing the thing that makes your product special, but doing it better than you. And so another pitfall is to lean too heavily into either one of those directions. At Superhuman, we tend to go into each quarter allocating about half our resource, doubling down on what people love, and then systematically uh, overcoming their objections. Yeah, I mentioned you make it sound uh, sound easy, and we have a very uh, we have a large audience of uh, prospective founders or very early stage founders, and and you've now founded the company and and got that got acquired, and you have a new <laughs> venture in Superhuman that's very uh, very successful so far yet uh, already. Uh, what are some of the tips you would have for someone who's just starting out and maybe in 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 you know, being te- a technical founder, then, or you don't need to be a technical founder per se, but building building a product and, and being in the maybe the SaaS field and, and trying to, to build something new. Quick question. Let me, let me have a bit of a think about this. So tips for SaaS founders. I would say there's going to be a number of things. It's easy to get hiring wrong. It's easy to get funding wrong. Let's see. Okay, five things. First of all, before you invest in growth, make sure that you have product market fit, like we just discussed. Unfortunately, you can use the product market fit engine to systematically get there. Secondly, as you start to grow, keep an eye on retention and churn. For individual subscription products, a good churn rate is two to three percent per month or less. For team subscription products, you want your churn rate to actually be negative. Your accounts should tend to expand in their dollar volume over time. Thirdly, if you plan on raising money, raise more money than you think you will need, about twice as much. You will probably need the money and you will be glad when you do. Most companies are overly optimistic about how well they will execute. And if you turn out not to need the money, then the runway will give you plenty of leverage when raising your next round. Fourth, start building your executive team as soon as you hit one or two million dollars of annual recurring revenue. It's very easy to put this off. It's one of the most common mistakes that founders make, but you cannot do this too early. Most SaaS organizations should start with a VP of marketing and then a VP of sales and then probably either a VP of success or a VP of product. And number five, don't get distracted. Should you build the next uh, uh, product or buy a smaller competitor? Probably not, but most founders actually get distracted when they have some semblance of success. If something is working, congratulations, that's amazing. But what the right thing to do is almost always double down on the success and keep on growing the core business. How many of these... uh advices have come about uh, from your own career? And do you have examples of maybe stories or anecdotes or just moments you realized uh, you you uh, you did something wrong and you corrected your course? Almost all of them. The products market fit engine is a good example. It was two years in where I was feeling that intense pressure because my last company had already sold by two years and we weren't anywhere near to product market fits, but it was still only a feeling. 
that I didn't know how to explain it to the team. And worse, I didn't really have an algorithmic plan for getting us out of there. And so that whole engine was a result of my desire to find a systematic way to get out of there. Similarly with churn, and I think this is something every SaaS founder finds as they grow their company, it's really hard to scale a SaaS business when you're selling individual subscription products. And so one of the things that we've done at Superhuman is increasingly those SaaS subscriptions are actually owned by the company. They're either paid for directly by the company or they are expensed from the individuals who are buying them. Raising money, I learned this the hard way at my last company where we ran out of money. I only raised a million dollars for reported before we sold it. And one of the reasons we sold it is because we ran out of money. It's quite possible that had I raised two or three times as much at the outset and had I not delayed raising money until the very end of running out of money, that that company would have been a very different outcome, su successful although it was. And then of course, every single founder, including myself, leaves bringing on VPs of all of the functions way too late. It's just one of those things that everyone seems to do. And I had to learn the lesson the hard way. And now, of course, one of my biggest uh, things that I'm working on where so much of my time goes is into bringing on amazing executives that can help take this company to the next level. And finally, I think on my last tip, which is don't get distracted don't go and buy the smaller company or build the next product. Look, we're all builders. One of the reasons we get into starting companies is we love to build. And when our companies become less about building a new thing and more about scaling an existing thing, I think our natural entrepreneurial urges start pushing us to go and create the next new thing, not the next new company, but the next new product. It's almost always a bad idea. Do you think that's a bad idea also for individual entrepreneurs? Um, if you think about, because there's this debate now, or it's been a debate for a long time uh, with generalists versus speci specialists and, uh, you know, should a founder focus only on one thing 100% and, and devote all their time to that? Or are you allowed to, you know, to have side ventures or learn from, from other companies? What's your view on, on that? I think that if you raise capital from investors and they are angel investors, they are institutional investors, they have put their money on the line for you, you owe them everything you've got. So running two companies at the same time, probably not. However, there's other things that you can do as a founder to become better as a founder. For example, I run a small early stage angel fund with my friend Todd Goldberg, and it makes me a significantly better founder in many different ways. One example way is that raising a fund and being an angel investor has made me a significant better fundraiser myself because at this point I will have heard nearly a thousand founders give their pitches. And when you hear a thousand pitches, there's no two ways about it. You're just going to become significantly better at getting pitches yourself because you've seen what makes a good pitch, you've seen what makes a bad pitch, you've seen all of the pitfalls. And you can just remember those times when you've walked away and, and gone, okay, those those folks are gonna make a billion dollar company. I, I am compelled. Yeah, right. Um, 
as a person interested in marketing, I still need to <laughs> need to get back to the wait list. And and you mentioned it was not a club, it was not on purpose, and you mentioned the philosophy behind it being the uh, you know the, the willingness to delight. Um, but uh, surely you still use some tactics. Uh, you mentioned the copy that you got out from the H- uh, HCX. Uh, or HXE, uh, I, I get the words wrong, but uh, anyway, from from that process. And um, uh, but what other tactics did you use to to build that waitlist, and how much of it was just organic growth from from people wanting in? Yeah, great question. I think that step one is we picked a very painful problem that lots of people have. Email takes far too long, and in Gmail or Outlook, it is joyless. Step two is we solved the problem. With Superhuman, you can save many hours per week and it is a delight to use. We've literally engineered it that way. Step three at the far end was insisting on delighting our users one by one. And in the middle, you were asking about certain types of tactics. It was all kinds of different things. In the first year of Superhuman, and this is something I advise to every founder that I work with, One of our main tactics was just injecting ourselves into the media conversation in an authentic and a useful fashion. In about 2015, 2016, Mailbox was much better known. It was an email app that had been acquired by Dropbox for north of $100 million. It had only been launched for five days, so it was a really big uh, story, a new story at the time. And a short year later, Dropbox shut Mailbox down. I knew this was going to happen and I thought, aha, as someone who has sold an email company myself to LinkedIn and a founder working in the space once again, I have a very nuanced and unique perspective on this. And so I wrote it all down into an article that was designed for founders going into an acquisition, learning how to survive and thrive in that acquisition. My 15 lessons on how to survive acquisitions. That article, I syndicated onto the most popular medium publication and also into actual media journals. And between those two was able to drive tens of thousands of signups for Superhuman in that first year of existence. And I thought, wow, this is actually a really efficient way of driving signups. It took me about two days full time to write the article. And I started to double down on that technique. A year or so later, of course, I published the product's market fit engine about a year after we had been using it ourselves. And earlier this year, I've released a lot of our thoughts on game design. Many people now know at Superhuman, we build our products in a very unique fashion. We build them as if they were games. And more recently, I've been talking a lot more about how I approach angel investing, how you spot really great companies, how you spot really great founders. And each of these things is an example of a topic that our audience really wants to know about, but that relatively few people are writing at our level of quality or depth. And so I was able to find white space, so to speak, around a few specific points of content. So that's been one pillar of growth for us. Another, of course, is the viral aspect of our waitlist. One very simple tactic we've used for our waitlist, and this is pretty simple, I think this works for every waitlist, is that if you refer somebody to Superhuman 
they jump to the top of the waitlist. So there is literally social capital. There is benefits that you can give to somebody else for referring them that goes beyond simple access to the product. And the third thing, of course, is a, a pretty robust PR strategy. So we have been featured in the New York Times. I was uh, live in Yahoo Finance and CNBC earlier this week. We have done quite a lot of top-tier PR work. That doesn't happen just by itself. You really do have to go after those opportunities. That usually means hiring a PR firm in addition to hiring someone internally within your organization who is dedicated on working with the PR firm. It's very difficult for the founder to just do it themselves. It can be done if it's your area of expertise, but I would highly recommend hiring for it as soon as you can. The game design aspect is really interesting. I'm guessing, and I've heard you say this before, You by saying uh, uh, that you have implemented aspects of game design, that's not the same as gamification. Am I correct in saying that? A hundred percent. We do core game design as opposed to gamification. It's not just adding points, levels, trophies, and badges. And that might sound weird because 10 years ago, gamification was a really big deal. But to understand the difference, one of the best uh, points of research is this really interesting experiment that was run in the 1980s over at Stanford. They recruited kids roughly aged two to four who were previously interested in drawing. Now they took these kids and they separated them into two groups. One was told about a reward. I think it was a certificate with a ribbon and a gold seal. The other wasn't told about a reward, so they didn't expect one or even know one existed. And then the kids were separated into two groups and asked to draw for about 20 minutes. And then afterwards, they would either get the reward or not. In the next few days, the kids were then observed to see how much they would continue to draw by themselves. Now, here's the thing. The kids who were given a reward, they spent about 8% of their time drawing over the next few days. But the kids who weren't given a reward, they spent about 17% of their time drawing over the next few days. So what's going on here? Well, it turns out that researchers differentiate between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. With intrinsic motivation, we do things because they are inherently interesting and satisfying. With extrinsic motivation, we do things because of external rewards. And that's the problem with gamification. When we receive an external reward, it reduces our intrinsic motivation to get the thing done. In software, when you're adding points, levels, trophies, and badges, it actually reduces the intrinsic motivation to do those things. And in cases where gamification seems to have worked, because it can be a good tactic, it is actually because the underlying experience was already a game, and not just that, it was actually designed to be a good game. Yeah, that's interesting. I, how, how then do you go about uh, creating inherent motivation or sort of increasing the inherent motivation when replying to emails? 
Well, the question more generally becomes, how do you design a good game? Right. And this is a question I've actually been obsessed with my entire life. As a kid, I learned to code just so I could make games. And before I was a founder, I worked as a game designer. Now, as a founder, I've gone deep into the principles of game design. And as it turns out, there is no unifying theory of game design. To create games, we need to draw upon the art and science of psychology, of mathematics, storytelling, interaction design, just to name a few. And I've whittled this down to five factors, essentially. Number one, goals. Number two, emotions. Number three, controls. Number four, toys. And number five, flow. Now, at Superhuman, whenever we're building any feature or designing any part of the experience, we consider these factors very carefully. So you asked how we do it. We can take one example, which is toys. And the question I like to ask is this, are toys the same as games? Because they do seem different. You see, we play with toys, but we play games. A ball is a toy and football is a game. And as it turns out, the best games are built with toys. Why? Because then they are fun on multiple levels, the level of the toy and of the game itself. Now in Superhuman, a favorite toy is the time autocompleter. This is the thing that you use to snooze emails. You hit a shortcut, you then type whatever you want. It can be complete gibberish and it does its best to understand you. For example, 2D becomes two days, 3H becomes three hours, 1MO becomes one month. And the time autocompleter is fun because it indulges playful exploration. What can it do? Where does it break? How does it work? It's not long before people start doing this and thinking, hmm, I wonder what happens if I keep on typing 10. Well, it turns out that if you type 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, that's October the 10th at 10, 10 p.m. Or how about a sequence of twos, two, 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 that's February the 2nd, 2022 at 2 p.m. And then you start trying more complex inputs like in a fortnight and a day, and that just works. And it's not long before you find pleasant surprises. For example, time zone math happens without you thinking about it. You can type in 8 a.m. in Tokyo, and it does the math automatically. That's 8 p.m. Eastern. And most people are really delighted to find that if you really want, you can snooze emails until never. I, you can literally type in never, and the email will be snoozed and never come back. So I'd say to our listeners, to our viewers, consider features of your own product. Do they indulge playful exploration? Are they fun even without a goal? And do they create moments of pleasant surprise? If so, congratulations, because you have a toy and you're well then on the way to building a great game. Yeah, that's kind of like with Apple's Siri. I think everyone has tried to make it and <laughs> break it at some point, so it's telling something stupid to it and see how it responds. And, and you can clearly see that they've, they've also gone to quite great lengths or or the AI there behind the system is, is quite clever already. And, and uh, you can joke around with it uh, quite well um, at this point already. Uh, what, what do you think um, one should read if you want to learn more on, uh, you know, more about this philosophy and this approach to product development? Well, I gave a pretty comprehensive introduction to game design at the last Andreessen Horowitz Summit. And I cover toys in detail, I cover flow and those other key factors of goals, emotions and controls. Folks can find it on the A60Z blog or by searching for superhuman and game design. 
Uh, maybe we can also include the link in the show notes here. Yeah. For folks who want to go deeper than debt, I would wholeheartedly recommend the book, The Art of Game Design by Jesse Schell. It is by far the best introduction on the topic and will get you up and running in no time. But I'd start with the video. I'd start with the blog. It takes about 20 minutes. The book is a deeper study. It's the kind of thing that, you know, you just want to keep on your bookshelf and constantly refer to over the years. I just had a thought. Tell me if this is far-fetched, but you mentioned flow. And my basic knowledge about the flow state is that it happens somewhere in between ease and and challenge. Uh, something has to be easy enough to do, but still hard enough to do that it's challenging and engaging. Uh, and this is a sort of, I don't know if this is like a very basic understanding of what flow is, but generally that's my understanding. Now, is there, uh, if you think about game design, is there ever an aspect uh, of flow state in a product that, uh, you have to consider the challenging part as well and not just ease or comfort of use. Is there any, is there ever the other side that you have to focus on when you're designing a game? A hundred percent. And in our principles of game design that we use internally at Superhuman, this is actually one of the most counterintuitive. So it turns out that academics have fortunately studied flow in great detail. It is now very well understood at least in game design, how to create flow. And this is something that I want to bring back into the wider technology community. It's things like, number one, get clear and immediate feedback. Number two, have no distractions. Number three, uh, and this is the thing that you were referring to, and this is the hardest to pull off actually, have a very clear balance between high perceived skill and high perceived challenge. In other words, you have to perceive your skill level to be high at the same time as perceiving the challenge to be high. Now, the problem is most product designers don't think about the high perceived challenge. In fact, we're generally taught when we become a product designer to make everything as easy as possible to do. Now, imagine someone comes to Superhuman and they're anxious about their email, well, that's actually most people, but their skill level is low. We then make their skill level high and their perceived skill level becomes much higher than their perceived challenge of their email. Well, at that point in the experience fluctuation model, which is a model that people or academics use rather to predict whether or not you will experience flow, the answer is you won't. What you will actually experience is boredom at best or apathy at worst. In order to actually get into flow, the better you get at email, the harder it also has to feel. Now, how do we do this? We do this by increasing the challenge level. And so initially in Superhuman, we give users a very simple goal, which is get to inbox zero. It turns out that clear, concrete, and achievable goals are a key part of game design. But then once they've learned some of the basic behavioral techniques to do that, we up the ante. We then say, cool, get to inbox zero, but by never touching the mouse. You can only do it on your keyboard. By the way, as a side effect, you're gonna get through your inbox twice as fast. But the other effect is that you will perceive flow. Like this will be one of the most inherently satisfying and interesting things that you do because of that very subtle balance between perceived challenge and perceived skill. 
Very interesting. Yeah, I never thought I could be this excited about email uh, <laughs> and clearing <laughs> clearing emails. Maybe to to round off, um, how do you what what's your vision for for Superhuman? You you had a pretty short but successful run with your uh, last company, and and now. You, you took your time developing and you, you're in no rush to onboard customers. In, in that sense, you're trying to delight your building, uh, it seems, for the long term. Uh, but uh, what's your, do you have an uh, end vision for, for Superhuman yet? Our vision is really simple. It's to help you become brilliant at what you do. One of the things that we found was weird when we started the company is how much software is a one-size-fits-all solution. Gmail has 1.5 billion users, yet there's only one Gmail. The average Gmail user receives five emails a day that they have to do something about. The average superhuman user receives hundreds of emails a day, sends hundreds of emails a day, and yet Google expects that set of people to all use the same product. It's kind of crazy. And so we're starting with email, but that certainly is by no means the end. We have all kinds of things that we want to build in order to help you become brilliant at what you do. Very cool. That's something Fantastic. I haven't heard before. So looking forward to, uh, <laughs> you know, to see what you, you come up with, uh, with next. And uh, we hope that you manage to stay independent also long enough so you can actually you know, create something that doesn't get killed by, by the big giants and, and can live on and, and uh, actually create delight uh, for a long time. That is the plan. Super. Fantastic, Raul. Thank you so much for uh, joining. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Thank you. And thanks to all the listeners and viewers as well. Stay tuned for more episodes each week and uh, comment if you've already tried Superhuman. See you. Bye-bye. Stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed your visit to that conversation as much as we did. Now, if you want to stay updated and keep in touch with us, please subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and then Facebook. You guessed it, Soap by Slush. Thank you people for listening. Bye-bye.